Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would teach us what it is to find our shelter in you, the Most High. Teach us, Lord, to abide in the shadow of your wings and to hope fully in the Lord Jesus. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, I was uh, playing basketball at Southern Seminary in the Intramural League. Uh, there was a faculty team, and we were competing against the students, and we had a ringer. Uh, he wasn't technically faculty, but he was the director of the Health and Rec Center. His name was Matt Imadi, and he was about six feet seven inches tall, and he had been his senior year in high school the Gatorade Player of the Year in his home state. I mean, he was, so he was the best player in the state of, uh, of Utah that, that, that year. And... Um, and I thought we were going to win it all. I mean, we've got Matt. What could go wrong? We, we had some other guys that could play a little bit. And we get into the playoffs. And, you know, in the game of basketball, sometimes the ball just doesn't bounce your way. The shots don't fall. The passes are off. And things just fall apart. And it was one of those nights for us. And we were getting, we were getting beat. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, what's going on here? We've got the Gatorade Player of the Year. We're supposed to be winning this game. And, and it, went from, it went from shock to frustration. You know, sometimes athletics can build character. Sometimes athletics reveal character. And there's blackness in our hearts. And something went wrong. I don't know. I think we, uh, we fouled or something like this. And here I am, a professor at this institution, playing with these students on the court. And I was so mad that I just took the basketball and I just pitched it at one of these poor students. <laughs> Nailed him. And of course, you know, I'm immediately, oh, I can't believe I just acted this way. So I have to go and apologize and uh, grovel in the dirt. You know, I can't believe I did this. Please forgive me. This was totally and completely wrong of me. Um, but that's what happened to us, happens to us, isn't it? When we put our trust in the wrong place. And, and I'm here to tell you this morning that if you put your trust in anything other than the Lord, if you put your trust in anything other than the Lord, you are going to be amazed, you are going to be shocked, and then you're going to be frustrated. And you're going to have to pick up the pieces when the thing lets you down. This psalm that's before us is really remarkable. You know, all the psalms, they, they seem to have their own organizing principle. And, and the organizing principle in Psalm 91 seems to be the way that, that the author, it, we're not told who wrote this psalm, but the author switches in terms of who he's addressing. So look at the first thing he says right off the bat, verse 1, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, he will abide in the shadow. So he's talking about this person in the third person, right? Um, he, that guy over there, he, and it's singular. And then he switches to the first person singular. I, verse 2, will say to the Lord. And then in verse 3, it's you. He, the Lord, will deliver you. And he stays with you, talking to this 
this person, and, and by the way, you can't necessarily tell in English, but those are you singulars. All these you's in the middle part of the psalm are you singulars. That continues down to verse 9. Because, and, and in verse 9, something interesting happens. He says, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. And that's like verse 1, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Then he says, the Most High who is my refuge. He goes back to the first person. And back in verse, verse 2, I will say to the Lord, my refuge. So there's kind of like a return to verse 1 at verse 9. But then he switches back to the use there in verse 10. No evil shall be allow allowed to befall you. And the you singulars continue through verse 13. And then in, in verse 14, he switches back to the he's. Okay, so it's like verse 1, he. Verses 14 through 16, he. And then there's a little bit of I in there, but mostly it's you. So at the beginning, he. At the end, he. And all through the middle, you. And there's two sections in the you sections. And, and they track with one another. It's like, it's like the same kinds of statements are made. Look at, look at the end of verse 4. Or the middle of verse 4. Under his wings you will find refuge. So this person that the psalmist is addressing is going to take refuge in the Lord. And then uh, in, in verses 5 through 7, what he basically says is, you are going to be delivered from all danger. So look at the end of verse 7. It will not come near you. All these things that threaten people, it will not come near you. So you're going to take refuge in the Lord. You're going to be delivered from danger. And then look at verse 8. You will look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Your enemies are going to be defeated. Okay, so that's verses 3 through 8. Refuge, deliverance, conquest. And that's going to be repeated now. Look at, look at verses 9 and 10. You have made the Lord your dwelling place. The Most High is my refuge. Refuge again. And then verses 11 and 12. This is the angels bearing up again. Deliverance from danger. And then look at verse 13. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Refuge in the Lord. Deliverance from danger. Conquest over the wicked, over the enemies. You're going to tread down the serpent and the lion. So, so there's this three-part kind of movement. It's almost like a theme and variations, verses 3 to 8 and then verses 9 through 13. And I think when we look at this, we can ask, who is this person being addressed? Who is this person being told, you're going to take refuge in the Lord? This individual, you're going to take refuge in the Lord. You're going to be delivered from all danger. You're going to see your enemies defeated. And then you, verse 13, are going to trample on the head of the serpent. Well, in the context of the Psalter, Psalm 2-7, uh, the Lord had addressed an individual and said to him, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. And then on the other side of this psalm, over in Psalm 110, there's somebody of whom it's going to be said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And, and I'm going to uh, suggest to you that that's the individual being addressed here in Psalm 91. Interestingly, the, uh, the rabbis, when they, when they translated the Hebrew into Aramaic, it's called the Targum, they inserted in verse 3, when it says, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler, they, they, they put it on the lips of David, addressed to Solomon. 
He will deliver you, Solomon, my son, from the snare of the fat. So it's the future king from David's line that's being addressed. So as we walk through this, as we walk through this, what we're seeing here is the future king from the line of David whose life and experience will be a paradigm for all of God's people. He is the example that we follow. The one who said to his followers, take up your cross and follow me. And because God has guaranteed that he will be delivered, we who take refuge in him will also be delivered. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. He who dwells in the shadow of the, of the Almighty. Verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. This is one of those instances of parallelism, right? Where dwelling and abiding are the same kind of thing. And then the shelter of the Most High is like the shadow of the Almighty. And there, there are several things for us to note here. One, he who dwells will abide. This is reflecting a series of choices that amount to a lifestyle. And, and two things are happening. God is doing the protecting, but the one doing the dwelling and the abiding is choosing to dwell there, right? You, when you dwell somewhere, it's, it's because you've decided that's where I'm going to live. And this is somebody who's not taking refuge in Matt Imadi. This is somebody who's not, they're not looking for their success at work or uh, the amount of money that they make or their, their what, whatever. They're not looking to anything that distinguishes people from each other to establish their, their, their safety or their protection. They're looking to the Most High. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. Their guns are not going to protect them. The Most High is going to protect them. Will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. So the first thing is, somebody's making a choice to do this. And everybody in this room has the opportunity to make that same choice. And the question is simply whether or not you're going to take the opportunity that you have. We all have the opportunity to take refuge in the Lord. And the psalmist is urging us to do that. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High. So first thing is you've got a choice to make. Second thing, there's no better place to find shelter. I think that's why he, the psalmist refers to the Lord here as the Most High. Now think about the shelter provided by the Most High, right? The, the rays, the scorching rays of the sun are not somehow going to come over the Most High. Nobody's going to undermine the Most High. And, and that's also reinforced by the shadow of the Almighty. This is the protection that God provides that we're talking about. There's no better shelter. There's no more effective shadow. And I think that the relationship that we see between verses 1 and 2 is, is uh, suggestive of the way that the psalmist wants us to respond. Because what he's doing is he's talking about this person who takes refuge there. He who dwells. And then he responds by saying, I, I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. 
So it's like the, the individual that he's talking about has inspired him to do likewise. Now, you know, when, when we think about what's going on here, what's happening is God is providing protection, isn't he? God is protecting this one. And what the psalmist is doing is he's going to multiply metaphors to help us think about what kind of protection we're dealing with. So he starts off in verse 2, I will say to the Lord, my refuge. Now, I don't know uh, what kind of uh, particular refuge. This can apply in all kinds of circumstances, can it? You can think of a raging storm and you, and you take refuge from the cold driving rain. You, you can think of a battle where uh, the enemy is, is strong and perhaps prevailing and somebody's finding refuge. You can think of really contentious uh, personal relationships, things that are really difficult. And, and you don't like these people and you don't know how to respond to these people and you find refuge in the Lord. You, 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 can, you can just apply it to your own life, can't you? Where are you going to find refuge? I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress. That brings in battle imagery. Fortress, you can think of this, this strong um, fastness where the walls are high and reinforced and thick stone uh, makes up these walls and the arrows are just going to bounce off. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress my God in whom I trust. So because of the way that the individual spoken of in verse 1 dwells in the shelter of the Most High, the psalmist responds in verse 2, I'm going to do likewise. And that's the kind of dynamic that I think we see throughout this psalm. Now he seems, in verse 3, he seems to address that individual. And what he tells him in verses 3 through 8, as we saw just a moment ago, is you will have refuge deliverance, and victory. You will have refuge, verse 3. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. This is not language that we typically use. A fowler is a hunter of birds. And so it's, it's as though the psalmist is saying, um, you're like a little bird, and maybe this is informed by, you remember Psalm 11, uh, David had said, how can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain?" And, and the psalmist is saying, you're like a little bird, and there are these fowlers, these hunters trying to entrap you, ensnare you. And God is the one who's going to deliver you from the snare of the fowler. And then, and then he changes the metaphor in the middle of verse 3, and he says, and from the deadly pestilence. So you can think of, of perhaps a plague sweeping through a place. And uh, how are you going to prevent yourself from being infected by this? How are you going to keep yourself healthy? Well, the psalmist is saying the Lord is going to be the one who protects you in these circumstances. And then he changes the imagery again uh, here in verse 4, where he says he will cover you with his pinions. And, and here it's the Lord who's a bird. And the pinions are the wings and he continues there in verse 4, under his wings, you will find refuge. John Calvin wrote about this, the, these statements here in Psalm 91.4. He said, when we consider the majesty of God, there is nothing which would suggest a likeness such as is here shown between him 
and the hen or other birds who spread their wings over their young ones to cherish and protect them. But in accommodation to our infirmity, he does not scruple to descend, as it were, from heavenly glory, which belongs to him, and to encourage us to approach him under so humble a similitude. Since he condescends in such a gracious manner to our weakness, surely there is nothing to prevent us from coming to him with the greatest freedom. He's like that mother hen sheltering with his wings. So the psalmist is addressing the future king from David's line, and this is the way he's going to be protected. And he's telling us about the Lord. So there's going to be refuge. Look at the end of verse 4. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. God's truth. God's faithfulness is founded on God's truth. When God makes a promise, when God makes a statement, he's going to be faithful to that promise, to that statement. If God says this is what the rules are, this is where the boundaries are, that's the way it's going to be. And what the psalmist is saying is the way that God's truth and faithfulness function is like a body shield. The word used here is, is for a shield that would cover your whole body. So it's as though you go out into battle and what you've got protecting the, you from head to toe is, is God's faithfulness. God's truth is your shield. And then it's also your buckler. Your buckler was this other shield. You, you had these two shields, a shield and a buckler, a smaller shield that you might use in one-on-one -on -one combat. What protects you is God's faithfulness. What protects you is God's trustworthiness, his commitment to his own truth. So there's going to be refuge in the Lord, verses 3 and 4. There's also going to be deliverance. There's a whole list of things here in verses 3 through 7 that the psalmist assures the future king from David's line, he will be delivered from. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Notice the, the contrast of day and night there. It's, a, it's one of those merisms. And, and it's, it's as though he's, he's, picking, he's picked polar opposites to say day and night and everything in between. So the kinds of things that people fear in the darkness at night, you won't fear those things. And then the kinds of things that can attack you in the day, those are not going to threaten you. And then he continues on the same, in the same way in verse 6, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. So night, day, darkness, noonday, none, none, of, none of the things that threaten people at any of those times is going to come at the Messiah. And then verse 7, a thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Jill and I were discussing this and she was asking me, how can, how can promises like this be made? Because people do experience calamities. People get hit by cars and, and they get struck by air. Things happen to people, don't they? Things happen to believers, right? This, yes, absolutely. Things, things befall us. And that's where I think this second person singular helps us. Because what's being said is not every one of you is going to be protected in every last circumstance, but 
Rather, the Lord is going to ensure that the Messiah is going to be preserved to complete his course. And because he has completed his course, nothing that the Lord doesn't intend to befall any of us is going to befall any of us. So, so what, what, what's being promised here is that Jesus is, is not going to be taken before the time comes. And I think as, as we read the Gospels, you can read about those occasions when the Jews sought to arrest him. And he just passes out from their midst. Nothing can happen to him until the time comes. They, early in Luke's gospel, Luke 4, they, they take him to the brow of a cliff trying to throw him over. And he just walks right through them. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand. It will not come near you. Victory, verse 8. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. The fact that the enemies are referred to here as the wicked, implies that the person being addressed is righteous. And praise God, that's exactly right. The Lord Jesus is perfectly and completely righteous. And those who oppose to him, the wicked, they will be recompensed. God's truth guarantees it. Now, what we've just seen in verses 3 through 8 is going to be repeated, as I said a moment ago, now in verses uh, 9 through 13. Once again, it's going to be refuge and then deliverance and then victory. Uh, and, and as I noted, the things said in verses 1 and 2, it's like they're restated here in verse 9. It's like the psalmist wants us to know. There's a, there's a, a break in thought here. We're going to start over and do this again. So verse 9, he's still speaking to this future king. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. Now there's a, this is stated to the future Messiah, but there's a principle here for us too. If you make the Lord your dwelling place, evil is not going to have the victory over you. If you make the Lord your refuge, Satan is not going to have the final conquest over you. Look at, look at what verse 10 goes on to say. No plague come near your tent. It's interesting, uh, the, the reference to plague here, it, it's, it's almost reminiscent of the plagues that, that fell on Egypt. And, and I think that that may be in the background of, of the the psalmist's mind, because you remember when the plagues fell on Egypt, Israel was unaffected by those plagues. The wicked experienced, the Egyptians experienced God's wrath through the plagues, but the Israelites were protected in the midst of them. And before I read verse 11, um, I want to I uh, share with you something that, that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote in his essay on fairy stories. He argued that there are these deep longings in our hearts that make us appreciate these, these, these stories that take place in, in kind of supernatural, different sort of worlds. And in these, in these fairy stories, uh, what you have is characters who they, they somehow get outside of time and they escape death and they hold communion with non-human beings and they find perfect love from which they never heart. And, and there's a final, ultimate triumph 
over evil. So you can see this in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. You can see it in the Chronicles of... You can see it in the Harry Potter stories. The, these, these aspects. The true version of this is the Christian story. Look, look at verse 11. He will command his angels concerning you. We, there, there is more to us than, than just what we see. There, there is more to reality than what we see. God has these supernatural messengers, these angels, and they are at work protecting God's people, carrying out God's purposes. The fact that you can't see them doesn't mean they're not there. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now once again, um, these are all second person singulars. And I think the fact that Satan addresses these words to Jesus in the temptation narrative that was read just a few moment ago, moments ago in this service shows that the devil understands who's being spoken to here. He will command his angels concerning you to bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. So, so I, I think that what we've got here is confirmation that the future king from David's line is being addressed here in the midst of uh, these indications that there are things beyond what we see. And then uh, what we have in, in verse 13 is an, an, an interpretation of Genesis 3.15 as, as the psalmist addresses the future king from the line of David. And it's like the psalmist is saying, you are going to be the seed of the woman, Genesis 3.15, who is the seed of Abraham, Genesis 12.1-3, who is the seed of Judah, Genesis 49.8-12, who is the seed of David, 2 Samuel chapter 7. You're the one. And what you're going to do in verse 13 is tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. You're going to stomp on the head of the serpent. And it's interesting how verse 13 parallels verse 8. And, and that being the case, the wicked in verse 8 are identified as, figuratively speaking, seed of the serpent in verse 13. They're, they're of their father, the devil, as Jesus speaks to his enemies in John 8. So the psalmist is saying to the future king from David's line, you are going to conquer. You're going to take refuge in the Lord. You're going to be delivered by the Lord, and you are going to experience, you are going to achieve the ultimate deliverance of God's people. You are going to be their champion. Now, in light of these things, I just want to think with you for a moment, and, or ask you to think. I've been thinking about these things. Where do you take refuge? What are you looking to for protection? What are you looking to for deliverance? What are you looking to for conquest? And, you know, people, people, in, our, people in our culture find refuge, deliverance, and conquest, or, or they try to find it in all kinds of different places. There's only one place that's ultimately going to satisfy. You put your hope in LeBron James, 10 years from now, He's just going to be a declining old man. If you put your hope in, in 
drugs or alcohol. Those things are going to eat you alive. They are going to result, they're going to leave you wasted away to nothing. They're going to devour you. If you put your hope in sexual fulfillment, God is going to ensure, God is going to ensure that you are frustrated and that you never really achieve the satisfaction that you're seeking. And then, and then there, there are ways in which people put their hope in medicine. And I, I, I want to be very careful here because I think medicine's a good thing. I'm not, I'm not trying to talk down medicine or doctors or anything like that. But we are more than chemicals. And we are more than the physical reality. And, and there are some medicines that we need to get us well. There are some medicines that people take to, that they hope are going to somehow make them happy. And, and I'm not sure what the connection is between the medicine and, and character. But we're the people who need to recognize that there are spiritual dimensions to who we are. And we're all making choices. And there are character issues at work here too. And, and what's always going to happen, I think everybody recognizes this, what's always going to happen with medicine is that law of diminishing returns. Where what may have helped you some initially, eventually your it's like your body adapts and, and, and it stops working. And, and we're going to have to deal with life. And the psalmist is urging us to take refuge finally in the Lord. And our hope is not that all our problems are going to be solved. Because as we all know, there are going to be ongoing difficulties. But if you will take refuge in the Lord, you will have exactly what is promised here. He will protect you. He will deliver you. And ultimately, nobody can deny this, right? The only way you can deny what I'm about to say is if you somehow stood at the end of history and saw the Lord Jesus fail at his return. That's the only way you can deny what I'm about to say. He will ultimately conquer. And when he conquers, we will be raised from the dead and given glorified bodies. And on that day, we will want to look back and say, we took refuge in him. We put our hope in him. Please, please don't misunderstand anything I'm saying, okay? I, I'm not... I'm not saying you shouldn't take recourse to medicine necessarily. If you're sick, you, need, you, need, you ought to go see the doctor. I'm not, okay, so just be clear on what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is, ultimately, that medicine is not going to fix you. It's not going to stave off death. It's not going to make you somebody that rejoices in the Lord. There are going to have to be other things that you do to cultivate that. So we've got verses 1 and 2, and then verses 3 through 8 and verses 9 through 13, which promise this conquest to the future king from David's line. And then in verse 14, some translations actually uh, insert here, the Lord says. Uh, uh, the ESV doesn't insert that, but I think that's nevertheless what's going on. God is now speaking about this individual. The individual spoken of in verse 1, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, and the individual addressed in verses 3 through 13. And this is what the Lord says. And I would just encourage you. You can think of this one of two ways. You can put yourself back in the day of the psalmist. And you can think in terms like this. A king from David's line has been promised. And this is the way that God is going to speak to that king. 
Or you could say, I'm going to look at that, this from, from our perspective today. And Jesus has come as the king from David's line. And this is the way that God the Father speaks to his eternal son. Because he holds fast to me in love. Jesus came and like nobody before him obeyed Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's the standard we're all held to. That's the standard, that's the glory of God of which we all fall short. All have sinned and, all fall, and are falling short of the glory of God. That's the glory of God. Love him with everything you are all the time. That's the ultimate standard. Nobody in here is righteous. None of us are righteous. I'm not righteous, you're not righteous. None of us is loving God every second. Jesus did. Because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. This is ultimately why God raised Jesus from the dead. Because death had no claim on him. Death had no power to hold him because he perfectly loved God. I will protect him because he knows my name. There, John 1 tells us that, that Jesus was in the bosom of the Father, John 1, 18, and he made him known. There was an intimacy between the Father and the Son that the Son alone is able to exposit. And, and that, I think that's being anticipated here. He knows my name. Th this king, from, this future king from David's line is being spoken of as someone who is going to know the character of God. That's what I think is being gotten at by name like nobody else. Verse 15, when he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him. One of the reasons I wanted to read, I wanted Deuteronomy 6 read, is because there's this promise made there. If you'll do these things, your life will be long in the land. And that, that gets repeated all over the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 17, if the king will write out his copy of the law and read in it all his days, his life will be long. And, and those statements, they, they ultimately culminate in that 2 Samuel 7 promise, when the Lord says about that king being promised to David's line, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's never going to come to an end. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. There are seven verbs here in verses 14 through 16, all that the, that the Lord says he's going to do for this individual. And those seven things... It's, it's like those of us who, who embrace the Lord Jesus, those of us who follow the Lord Jesus, it's like God begins to do for us what he promised to do for Jesus because we're being conformed to his image. And, and you can think of a passage like Romans 8 where, where it's promised that those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified with I will rescue him and honor him literally it's I will rescue him and glorify him there in verse 15 nobody more epitomizes what's what's stated here in Psalm 91 than Jesus look at those words there in the middle of verse 15 I will be with him in trouble 
you remember what Jesus said to his followers at the end of Matthew's gospel? After the Great Commission, I will be with you always. I will be with you no, always. Nobody lived more in God's presence than Jesus. Nobody more inhabited the shelter of the Most High, the shadow of the Almighty. Nobody did that better. Nobody took refuge in God like Jesus. Nobody trampled the dragon like Jesus. Verse 13, you will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. Nobody loved the Lord or knew God's name like Jesus. Jesus is everything to us. We're the people that want to be like Jesus, aren't we? We want to follow his example. We want to experience his deliverance. If, if you're here this morning and um, you're not sure that you want to follow Christ, that you want to identify as a Christian, I would just ask you to, to answer this question in your own head. You don't have, I'm not telling, you know, you can come talk to me afterwards if you want to, but just think about this question. Do you really have, do you, do you have a better refuge than this? Do you have a better story than this? Because we all interpret our lives in the context of a story. We all, we all interpret our lives against a wider backdrop that informs who we are that tells us who we're becoming, that tells us where we're going, that tells us what we expect to get better. Is there a better story? Is there a better refuge? Because Jesus lived out the fullness of this psalm, we who follow him, who embrace him, who entrust ourselves to him, we can take up our crosses and follow him. The people of Jesus can inhabit this hiding place, the shadow of the Most High. We can do this because of what He did. We can enter boldly and find grace in the time of need. Tim, Tim Keller writes this, If we stand back to ask what we have learned about happiness over the centuries, what we have learned about happiness over the centuries, it is striking to see our lack of progress. Think of how we have surpassed our ancestors in our ability to travel and communicate, in our accomplishments in medicine and science. Think of how much less brutal and unjust to minorities many societies are today compared with those even 100 years ago. In so many ways, human life has been transformed. And yet, though we are unimaginably wealthier and more comfortable than our ancestors, no one is arguing that we are significantly happier than they were. We are struggling and seeking happiness in essentially the same ways our forebears did and doing a worse job of it if we use the rise of depression and suicide as an indicator. But those who know this refuge, those who know this hiding place, this shelter, they will have a lasting happiness that's better described with the word joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you that he will never let us down. We thank you for the way that he perfectly modeled 
love for you, for the way that he took refuge in you, for the way that you delivered him, even from death. And Lord, through that, we thank you for the way that he conquered, the way that he achieved the victory. And we thank you for all the things that you have promised to do for him. And because we're united to him by faith, we thank you for the way that those promises guarantee that we will be made like him. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would cause the truths of Psalm 91 to saturate our souls. And we pray that you'd make us people who take refuge in you. In Christ's name, amen.